1: There's this skit from Chappelle's Show, for those of you old enough to remember Chappelle's Show. It's a riff on the old crime drama Law and Order, and it always comes to mind when we get into these cases about the Fifth Amendment.
0: Sir, is it true you were a crack cocaine dealer for
1: seven years?
0: I, I plead the fifth.
1: <laughs> Sir, will you tell us about the cartels you dealt with in your time as a crack cocaine dealer?
0: Um, no, but I can tell you that I plead the physics. Exactly how much money did you earn in your time as a crack cocaine dealer? There are, I said there are so many amendments in the Constitution of the United States of America. I can only choose one. I can only choose. The be the Five, one, two, three, four.
1: In the show, Chappelle's character, Tron Carter, is hauled in front of a U.S. Senate subcommittee on narcotics to offer testimony, and on the advice of counsel, he invokes his Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate himself through his testimony. But what if he had been called in front of his state legislature, or just brought into a police precinct for questioning, or put on trial in a local state court? Would he still have a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, more specifically as the Fifth Amendment words it, a right not to be compelled to be a witness against himself? Does the Fifth Amendment offer any protection when it's the state government rather than the federal government that compels you to be a witness against yourself? And we could ask the same question about state actions that take private property without just compensation, limit the free exercise of religion, or abridge the freedom of speech, or fail to provide trial by jury, and on and on. Do the rights outlined in the first ten amendments to the Constitution have any relevance for what a state government may or may not do? That's the question we've been considering, as we've talked about Barron versus Baltimore in 1833, the slaughterhouse cases, and a string of cases in the 20th century that included Adamson v. California, 1947, and Roachin v. California, 1952. Those latter cases highlight a disagreement between two of Franklin Roosevelt's appointees to the Supreme Court, Justice Felix Frankfurter and Justice Hugo Black. Their disagreement was about whether the 14th Amendment to the Constitution should be read as incorporating the Bill of Rights in its limitations on state governments. That's what we mean when we talk about incorporation. It's the incorporation of the Bill of Rights into how we interpret the limitations on state action in the 14th Amendment. But what part of the 14th Amendment would make the Bill of Rights applicable to the states? Not the Privileges or Immunities Clause, at least not after the Slaughterhouse Cases in 1873. The Supreme Court considered in that case and then rejected the idea that the privileges or immunities of national citizenship would be shorthand for the fundamental rights outlined in the Bill of Rights. In the mid-20th century, though, the court began to interpret the due process clause of the 14th Amendment in a way that actually did apply most of the Bill of Rights against the states. That process we refer to as selective incorporation, something we can understand better, I think, by looking at these two alternatives represented by Frankfurter and Black. Frankfurter was a critic of incorporation. For him, it made no linguistic sense. What was the point of reading the Due Process Clause's shorthand for the Bill of Rights? The clause says only that the state shall not deprive you of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The question is what due process of law requires, and the answer for Frankfurter was that it requires us to think deeply about decency, fairness, and justice, but it doesn't require us to consult the Bill of Rights. In his concurring opinion in Adamson v. California, Frankfurter put it this way, the notion that the 14th Amendment was a covert way of imposing upon the states all the rules which it seemed important for 18th century statesmen to write into the federal constitution was rejected by the judges who were themselves witnesses of the process by which the 14th Amendment became part of the Constitution. And those judges, of course, are the judges from the Slaughterhouse Cases, decided just five years after the 14th Amendment's ratification. And Frankfurter's preferred approach to due process was this— The court, he said, must ascertain whether some state action offends those canons of decency and fairness which express the notions of justice of English-speaking peoples, even toward those charged with the most heinous offenses. These standards of justice are not authoritatively formulated anywhere, Frankfurter says, as though they were prescriptions in a pharmacopoeia. But neither does the application of the due process clause imply that judges are wholly at large. The judicial judgment in applying the due process clause must move within the limits of accepted notions of justice, Frankfurter concludes. It's not to be based upon the idiosyncrasies of a merely personal judgment. Frankfurter here is cutting a path that's a precursor to our modern progressive jurisprudence, which looks to changing understandings or some emerging societal consensus or even international law to interpret what justice demands in particular cases. But note, Here, the actual outcome of the case was that Adamson was convicted of a crime in California after the prosecutor instructed the jury to take notice of his refusal to testify. For Frankfurter and the court, that actually wasn't problematic in this case. Our founders in the late 18th century might not have liked the idea of using someone's silence as evidence of guilt, but that doesn't tell us how we should understand the due process clause today, Frankfurter suggested. And to that, Justice Hugo Black couldn't agree. In his dissenting opinion in the case, Black vigorously criticized Frankfurter's approach as wholly subjective, depending on the whims of the judges and not tied in any meaningful way to the Constitution. Black then gave a detailed legislative history of the 14th Amendment, and he attached a lengthy historical appendix, all arguing that the framers of the 14th Amendment did actually intend to make the Bill of Rights applicable to the states. With full knowledge of the import of the Barron v. Baltimore decision, he writes, the framers and backers of the 14th Amendment proclaimed its purpose to be to overturn the constitutional rule that case had announced. And the constitutional rule was that the Bill of Rights didn't apply. And he's saying that the framers of the 14th Amendment meant to get rid of that. They meant to apply the Bill of Rights to the states. And so Black's solution was this, total incorporation of the Bill of Rights into the Due Process Clause. We don't pick and choose from among them, he says. If there's a right protected in the Bill of Rights, then we should hold that the state and national governments alike are responsible for protecting those rights. Black here then takes up the opposite pole of Frankfurter. He cuts a path that's a precursor to our modern originalist jurisprudence, which emphasizes historical understandings and original meanings, seeks to limit judicial discretion by tethering judicial interpretation to constitutional text and discounts any appeal to changing societal values or any emerging consensus or international law. As Black puts it, quote, I fear the consequences of the court's practice of substituting its own concepts of decency and fundamental justice for the language of the Bill of Rights as its point of departure in interpreting and enforcing that Bill of Rights. The Supreme Court then, in later cases, cuts a middle path between Frankfurter's rejection of incorporation and emphasis on current accepted notions of justice, and Black's textualism and his emphasis on the total incorporation of the Bill of Rights. What the court actually ends up with is what we call selective incorporation. And we can see this approach emerge in cases like Duncan versus Louisiana in 1968, and then we can see its continued relevance in cases like McDonald v. City of Chicago in 2010. In Duncan v. Louisiana, a 19-year-old Louisiana man was charged with simple battery and sentenced to 60 days in prison. The problem was that he was never given a jury trial. Under Louisiana law, there were certain relatively low-level crimes that you could be sentenced to prison for without ever having a trial by jury. The Supreme Court in this case then holds that Louisiana had violated Duncan's Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. Why? Justice Byron White, the only former NFL player to serve on the Supreme Court, writes for the majority that the test for determining whether a right in the Bill of Rights applies to the states is whether that right is fundamental to the American scheme of justice. He concludes that our history shows a deep commitment of the nation to the right of jury trial in serious criminal cases as a defense against arbitrary law enforcement, And then he says that the Sixth Amendment, therefore, qualifies for protection under the Due Process Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. Notice what he did here. He blended together the previous approaches we've seen. We incorporate some rights in the Bill of Rights, but only those that are fundamental to the American scheme of justice, deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions. Now, to determine whether any particular right in the Bill of Rights is protected against state action by the Fourteenth Amendment, we'll have to litigate one at a time. And that's what we've done slowly and selectively incorporating different aspects of the Bill of Rights over time. The most recent and relevant discussion along these lines came in McDonald v. City of Chicago in 2010. The question was whether Chicago could impose an effective ban on individual handguns. The reason the debate over incorporation came in is because it's about whether the Second Amendment to the Constitution, protecting the right to keep and bear arms, limits the state's is the Second Amendment incorporated? And the court for the first time says yes. Following a decision from two years prior, the court says that the Second Amendment right is an individual right to keep and bear arms, and that includes the right to keep a handgun for self-defense. And then the court in this case incorporates that right into the Due Process Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. Listen carefully here to Justice Alito's explanation in his opinion announcement for the McDonald case.
0: Provisions of the Bill of Rights originally applied only to the federal government, and that is how things stood until after the Civil War. After the Civil War, the ratification of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments changed the relationship between the federal government and the states. Two provisions of the 14th Amendment figure in the present case. The first is the Privileges or Immunities Clause which prohibits a State from abridging, quote, the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. The second is the Due Process Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, which prohibits a State from depriving any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. At the time of the ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment, there were those who thought that the phrase privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States protected all of the rights guaranteed by the Bill of Rights and there are prominent scholars today who continue to hold that view. The meaning of the Privileges or Immunities Clause came before the Court in the Slaughterhouse Cases in 1873. In that case, in a sharply divided decision, the Court gave the Privileges or Immunities Clause a very very narrow interpretation. And the late 19th-century cases on which the Seventh Circuit relied have generally been interpreted as holding that the right to keep and bear arms does not qualify as one of the privileges or immunities of national citizenship. While the Slaughterhouse Cases meant that the rights set out in the Bill of Rights would not be protected by the Privileges or Immunities Clause against infringement by the States, the Court, beginning around the turn of the century, began to consider whether those rights were protected against abridgment by the States under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The Court's decisions on this question fall into two distinct eras. The first runs from around the end of the 19th century until roughly the middle of the 20th century. The second runs from the end of the prior era to the present day and has featured what has often been called the process of selective incorporation. Now let me return to the pre-selective incorporation era. Three characteristics of the cases that were handed down during that period should be noted. First, some of the Court's cases during this era said that the Due Process Clause protects only those rights that are indispensable characteristics of any civilized society. Second, the Court during that time was not hesitant to hold that a right set out in the Bill of Rights was not protected by the Due Process Clause. And third, even when a right set out in the Bill of Rights was held to fall within the conception of due process, the protection or the remedies that were available against the States often differed from the protection or remedies that were available against the Federal Government. During this pre-selective incorporation era, there was a rival theory concerning the relationship between the Bill of Rights and the States, and that has often been called the theory of total incorporation. Which, as the name suggests, meant that the due process clause would be totally incorporated, uh, would totally incorporate all of the provisions of the Bill of Rights. The court never accepted that theory, but eventually it moved in that direction by beginning the process of selective incorporation. And selective incorporation meant that the court incorporated provisions of the Bill of Rights one by one rather than all at once. The Court abandoned the three characteristics of the earlier era that I have previously noted. First, the Court made it clear that the governing standard is not whether a right is an essential feature of any civilized nation. Instead, the Court considered whether a right is fundamental from a distinctly American perspective. Second, the Court shed any reluctance to hold that rights protected by the Bill of Rights met the requirements for protection under the Due Process Clause. Indeed, the Court eventually incorporated virtually all of the rights in the Bill of Rights under the Due Process Clause. And third, the Court emphatically rejected what it called, quote, the notion that the Fourteenth Amendment applies to the States only a watered-down, subjective version of the individual guarantees of the Bill of Rights. Instead, the Court took the position that incorporated Bill of Rights protections, quote, are all to be enforced against the States under the Fourteenth Amendment according to the same standards that protect those personal rights against Federal encroachment. I now turn directly to the question before us in this case, does the Second Amendment right recognized in Heller apply to the States, and if so, does it apply to the States to the same extent as it applies to the Federal Government? The Court holds that it does.
1: Note what Alito says here. The question is whether the Second Amendment applies to the states. The answer is yes, and the constitutional path is through the Due Process Clause because of the particular history of interpretation of the 14th Amendment, starting with the slaughterhouse cases and then ending with the theory of selective incorporation of the Bill of Rights into the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. But even if we agree that some provision in the Bill of Rights is incorporated into the 14th Amendment, that's going to begin rather than end our interpretive task. We still have to ask what those amendments mean. What is cruel and unusual punishment? What is public use? What makes a search or seizure reasonable? And how do we know? What resources can we bring to bear on this interpretive task? We'll keep these questions in mind as we turn next week to another important legal doctrine that will help us understand the Supreme Court's approach to constitutional rights, and that's the doctrine of substantive due process.